he does such a great job in just one scene You're right. of delivering the most important lines and leaving you with like a, uh-oh, this isn't going to oh, go yeah. well impression. It's not very often where I point out a movie poster, but if you haven't seen this film, and you probably haven't, look up the movie poster, it's awesome. A great bit of foreshadowing, and I think really, Everything would have worked out fine if it wasn't for that bitch Carol Baskin. <laughs> well, back in the days when we were using theme music, we'd be playing Two Out of Three Ain't Bad right now, or maybe <laughs> I Do Anything for Love, hot or patootie. Bad Out of Hell, or Hot Patootie. That's right. Uh, welcome. This is the Fright Club Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And we are from MadWolf.com, and this is our Fright Club Salute to the horror roles, the best horror roles of Meatloaf. Of course, he passed away. Here recently, we just had a string of these uh, entertainment uh, deaths here yeah. in, in the last few weeks. And uh, yeah, Meatloaf came as somewhat of a surprise. Um, I think he, if you paid a lot of attention, maybe he hasn't been in the best of health over the last few years. And apparently this, uh, he passed away due to complications from COVID. And, you know, since then it's come out uh, that he's had a, a lot of views on vaccinations and things like that. We're not going to get into that. You know, we're, we don't agree with that, but uh, I know we liked it. We liked his films. We liked his acting. Uh, we liked his music. I think I probably liked it better than you did. I guarantee you did. Um, <laughs> but as I said before, when Bad Out of Hell came out, that hit me right, you know, in the nostalgic sweet spot. That sweet spot that came out when I was 13, 14 years old. And I just wore it out. <laughs> uh, listened to it so, so much. And it's still, I think it is still, Bad Out of Hell is still in the top. 10 albums of all time. That's amazing. I think, isn't it? That is amazing. And it's funny because our son is a massive fan of that album. Massive. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, the funny thing was, then then especially and now still, it when it came out, it didn't sound like anything else. Oh, no, not you at know, all. The way Jim Steinman wrote songs and, and the way Meatloaf performed them yeah. in such a, with such a dramatic, in such a dramatic way, they were a perfect combination. And interestingly enough, when Jim Steinman died, which was just here recently as well, just a few months ago, Meatloaf did an interview with a Rolling Stone, and he just, I read it, and he just he seemed so, so sad, Aww. just broken up over Jim Steinman passing away. And then uh, just a, a couple of weeks after that, we got to meet, remember, we got to meet Meatloaf's daughter, we did. Amanda, <clears throat> a day at uh, a film festival in Cleveland. Yes. She was there as a special guest. We had no idea if she was going to be there. Next no. thing you know, we're talking to Meatloaf's daughter, so... And I almost said something. I, I, you know, I was afraid to bring it up, but I almost said, you know, I just read this interview with your dad, and God, he just seems so sad about it. Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, sad to hear that he passed away. And uh, we just got to thinking because we didn't have a really a, a topic yet for the next Fright Club because we've been going back and forth. We've been trying to, to get the Fright Club live scheduled, and that's been tough with the movies. So anyway, we've kind of had gone back and forth on subjects, but then we thought, well, you know, Meatloaf, not only an iconic rock star, but also a very accomplished actor. Yes. And he did plenty of horror roles. So, so let's talk about that. That's so right. that's what we're going to do. And welcome to it. And uh, before we talk about that, let's talk about last time. Speaking of Fright Club Live, we were in front of another a great crowd at Gateway Film Center in Columbus, Ohio, as we talked about addiction horror. And we watched The Addiction live on screen. And that was cool because... What did we have? Maybe one person in the crowd who had seen it? Yeah, which surprised me because Abel Ferrara, I mean, for the, the filmmakers that we choose, he's he's kind of a, a well-known guy, especially among horror fans. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm sure a lot of people have seen Driller Killer and certainly, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, a lot of his movies, to be honest with you. So I was a little surprised 
Uh, bad I lieutenant. Think, bad lieutenant. I think only one person had seen it. Yeah. Uh, Ms. 45. I mean, he's done a lot that they might have seen. And I was surprised because this of his films has a, a pretty big cast. Like, it big does. time cast. Yeah. It, I have never seen it on a big screen before. And it is stunningly filmed in black and white. And yeah. New York City looks so gorgeous. Well, as somebody, movie. I think it was Brandon, uh, pointed out, rightly so, New York City. Oh, no, it was um, Richard. Mm-hmm. New York City is a character in oh, this movie. no question. Yeah, very, yeah. very much so. And yeah, and the crowd loved it, I think. I think so too, and I was, time. you know, it's. I, I was a little nervous because it's very talky and philosophical, as as uh, Ferrara's later work tends to be. But it's also it's bloody. It delivers the blood. The performances are great. The cast is great, and there's a an extended cameo, let's say, from Christopher Walken yeah. that is just peculiar and amazing. Yeah. So that was cool, and now we do finally have. In fact, just in the last couple of days, we've got finally the the um, movie that we're going to have next. For the next Fright Club Live, which is going to be Wednesday, February the 9th, back at Gateway Film Center, what we got? A 35-millimeter print of dead snow. Nice. I Perfect. I so excited. Perfect for the winter months uh, if you're surrounded as we are right now with cold and snow. Uh, what better way than to get back in it? That's and right. And some, some Nazi zombies <laughs> and some blood. You know, red blood on the snow always looks great. Yeah, it does. Right? It looks so good in this movie. And this is this is a good one. So that's what we're going to talk about, Nazi zombies? That is. That yeah. is going to be our topic. All right. So that's good. If you're in the area, anywhere close around Columbus, we'd love to see you. Again, that's February the 9th. We're always the second Wednesday of the month at uh, for Fright Club Live. And this past week or so, we had a very big uh, landmark uh, event in our lives because... <laughs> We found ourselves for the first time in a long time years, with, with a slow years. movie week. Yeah. There just wasn't a lot for us to watch, which is which is hardly the case. And we were looking around and we thought, you know what? This might be the time we can binge watch a show because people are always telling us, oh, you need to watch this. You need to watch this binge watch shows, which we just can't do because of the time. We're just watching movies all the time. But we found one that we could binge watch in a weekend and we loved it. And it's, it's funny because uh, Jeff, uh, a, f- a Fright Clubber, Jeff, was talking to us about it at the last Fright Club Live, how much he loved it, how much he thought we would love it. And then my friend, Celinda, from our hometown, she she would text me all the time. Your hometown. My hometown. <laughs> Apologies. Yeah. Midnight Mass. Midnight Mass. So good. Really, really enjoyed it. Mike Flanagan, uh, as, as it went on, the writing, the writing was really, really good. And, of course, it's steeped in Catholicism, which you were all about. And it gets it so right. Yeah. It gets it so right. You know how much that makes me crazy. I and, do. Oh, my God, it was just pitch perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really good. And someone pointed why well, I mentioned on social media that we were doing that. And people were, oh, yeah, loved it, loved it. And somebody mentioned um, it's so... It's the most Stephen Kingiest thing without being Stephen King. And you know what? I think we both thought, we know this is better writing than Stephen King. Yeah, I know that. I don't want to commit blasphemy here, but this was really layered, powerful writing. It was incredibly well written. Yeah, really. Yeah, I totally agree with you. The the writing was just astonishing at some points. And some of the performances, Bev! Oh, Bev. Oh, my God, she was so good. How badly did you just want to punch her in the face and worse? That character was so well written and so well developed. And God, that performance was brilliant. Yes, and it's only seven episodes. That's the thing, because somebody, when I posted we were seeing this, and one of my friends said, okay, now you got to watch Ozark. And I looked, and Ozark is 44 episodes. Yeah, that's never going to happen. I can't, we can't years. do it. No, never, ever, <laughs> ever. I'm sure it's great. Don't yeah. get me wrong. But, uh, so, yeah, we loved Midnight Mass, so thanks for that. Um, uh, okay, so we're talking about Meatloaf, the horror films, the best horror films of Meatloaf. Meatloaf born with the name, and this was kind of funny. This came up. Since he passed away, I was interested in seeing this because I didn't know. He was born with the name Marvin Lee Aday. Which you did know. I did know that. 
actually answered a, a trivia question years ago because when <laughs> the, the time I got to speak to him for 10 seconds years ago, it was in the, the early 90s, before the big comeback, before Bad Out of Hell 2 came out, which was 93, I believe. There was a mall, used to be a mall here in Columbus, Ohio, and they had this knockoff bar that was trying to be like a low-rent hard rock cafe. It was called the Metropolitan Music Cafe. They tried to do the same theme. So when famous artists came to town, they would try to have them come, and they would do like a you know handprint in the cement sort of thing. Anyway, so Meatloaf was there, and I happened to be there that night, and uh, yeah, I got to say something for like 10 seconds. But anyway, so they had Meatloaf trivia, and I knew that anyway. So yeah, born with the name Marvin Lee Aday, but then... Years later, he started using the name Michael Lee a day. Uh, okay, I, w- I wasn't able to find out why, but whatever. And then if you look at some of the credits, over the years he went by Meatloaf a day, sometimes ML a day in some of his uh, roles. And other times, he, he, in fact, at least one of them we're going to talk about now, he wasn't credited at all. <laughs> but uh, yeah, for some more small part or whatever. But for our purposes, Meatloaf. Is who we're uh, talking about, which, by the way, the the name, uh, I saw an interview in his own words. He says he got that name early on He when he played football. It was either high school or junior high football when he was a, a kid, big kid, obviously. He stepped on the coach's foot with his cleats on, and his coach yelled at him and said, Would you get off my foot, you big hunk of meatloaf? Uh, <laughs> so that was right from his mouth uh, in an interview that I watched online. So that's how he got the, the name Meatloaf. But right away, when you're thinking about Meatloaf and acting, I think the first role that has to come, well, okay, one of the ones we're going to talk about. But the other one, which I thought at the time he could have gotten and would have deserved an Oscar nomination, and that is Fight Club. It was amazing. He's and it's, great. it was it. You know, we'd seen him in a lot of things. I always liked him as an actor. I think he's got a, he always had a, a very interesting stage presence. But that movie, I had no idea what his range was like. It was so sympathetic and lovely. And especially the early scene where he's, he has to stay on the front porch and, and he comes out and tells him to leave the front porch and he gets all sad and he walks away and then, you yeah. know, have to run back out. And no, 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 no just stick it out. Yeah. It was his performance in that role was just beautiful. It, it, it really is so sympathetic. And, of course, the measure of that is how you feel after what happens to his yes, character. Yes, oh, my God. You're just, you're just you're, heartbroken. You are gutted. Yeah, he's a character that found, you know, he found a, a family in this group of psychopaths <laughs> uh, and what they were doing. He found a purpose. And he was great, great in the role. And I thought he, he could have easily been uh, nominated for an Oscar for that. But... He's done many other roles. You may have seen him in uh, The Mighty or Crazy in Alabama. Focus, Salt and Sea. He's also in a horror movie that we're not going to talk about because it's just awful, and it's called Blood Rain, but he's in that too. (laughs) Yeah, so he's done a lot of different roles, and if you look at his history, I mean, he came from a natural. I mean, he did, at one point in his career, he did, I think it was Shakespeare in the Park with, with some big names back in the day. So he had quite the, uh, the, the entertainment resume, not only in music, uh, and on stage, of course, but uh, in, in acting as well, doing Shakespeare. So, yeah, very, very talented, multi-talented. But uh, we're talking about the horror roles, our favorite horror roles from Meatloaf. So let's start with one at number five. We've got a top five here. Let's start with one. And this is one uh, in the credits where he went by Meatloaf a day. And this is uh, 2014. A snobby musical theater camp is terrorized by a bloodthirsty killer who hates musical theater. Is it you? <laughs> this is called Stage Fright. There has been an accident. Maybe there's somebody out there. 
that really doesn't want him to put on this play. Cam, do you think this is connected to your mom? Isn't it wrong to sing and dance when someone just died? Camilla, where are you? There's a killer in here! It's not very often where I point out a movie poster, but if you haven't seen this film, and you probably haven't, look up the movie poster. It's awesome. It's just got, it's a great movie poster. It's a great throwback, like late 70s, early 80s movie poster. It's really good. The film itself is hit or miss. It's yeah. like if you took that hot, wet American summer, right, yes. right? and, and uh, you know, any camp slasher and threw in a little kabuki, you know, and then <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and it's got a, a lot of references, a lot of callbacks to slasher movies, including Friday the 13th. They're, they're, they're at camp. That's the location. Uh, Hellraiser. You've got pins in a makeup head, and they say, nailed it. Um, a Carrie. <laughs> there's a bucket of blood. Halloween. I mean, so it's it's got some love for the genre for sure, but it does have that wet, hot American summer type of, of wink, wink, and a bit of kabuki. That's interesting. I didn't think of that before, but now I see it. And it's interesting that way. And also, one thing in this movie that some people don't like in these movies, but I appreciate it. Cast did all their singing live. Mm-hmm. Some people aren't fans of that. I, I think it's pretty ambitious, and um, it's more of a, the experience that you'd have if you were there. So mixing the, the feel of live theater and a movie, I, I don't have a problem with it. I kind of like it when they do it, but they do it here. I do like that about it, actually. And, and uh, Meat Love plays the guy who runs the camp and is a bad dude. He's a bad dude, and he's just trying to, you know, squirrel away as much money as possible. And then uh, you have all of the youngsters, the teens. In the middle of it all, you have kind of a a little bit of like maybe a phantom of the opera Mm -hmm. kind of a storyline. The end result is too much of a mishmash. And there are a lot of places where you think that under different circumstances, this might have been a comedy, but it is not a comedy. Right. It feels like it maybe was supposed to be. It's definitely done... Straight face, yeah. But there's something about the way it's constructed and the way it works in all of the all of the nods that mm-hmm. you think. Oh, I, I wonder if the writer thought this was a comedy. <laughs> uh, Mini Driver is also a very familiar face that you will see in this movie, and Meatloaf's character. I mean, it, it feeds right into his sense of the dramatic. Yes. Anything on stage, you know, it, it's a perfect sort of a, sort of a vehicle for that. But I think that's a good point where it might have been a comedy at one point, but but it's fun. It you know, is fun, actually. It, it, it is. is, especially if you like if if you're going to recognize all these references to other uh, famous uh, horror movies that you probably will. If you haven't seen it, look it up. That is from 2014. Meatloaf a day in Stage Fright, number five on our Meatloaf list. Moving up to number four. This is one that he's not in very long, uh, but it's a it's a memorable movie for a few reasons. This is from 2010. It's a thriller centered on a young woman and her autistic little brother who are trapped in a house with a ravenous tiger during a hurricane. It's called Burning Bright. I'm starting a safari ranch. I need a scary animal. That's what the tourists pay to see. This cat, he's not scary. He's evil. Please, God, let there be way.
And one of the first, I remember watching this, and one of the first questions I had was the title. Where's that come from? Well, let me tell you. It comes from a William Blake. William Blake? I can't believe you didn't know. Who just, who, who just thought of uh, Bull Durham? <laughs> you know, I'm not off of my William Blake. Um Poem, The Tiger, published in 1794. Tiger, so, Tiger, Burning Bright. Yes. Yeah, so no, I was not I was not hip to that. Hmm. Nobody hit me to that. But uh, that's why. And it also is is memorable for that great. There's a great scene where the tiger is trying to get this woman coming up a, a chute, like a, a like, laundry chute. Laundry that's pretty cool. That is uh, that's the best sequence in the movie. I mean, it's it's great. It's a great. It is filmed really well. The, the cinematography and the editing for that scene is just amazing. The movie itself, it's, I mean, it starts off being problematic because of the uh, the performance. You don't want to pin it on a kid. But the the way that the, the younger brother who is on the spectrum and that the performance of the younger brother, that's going to be the reason that this movie kind of is a little cringy. Not that I think yeah. everybody did their best with it, but it does, it feels more exploitative than sensitive, certainly. Yeah, things have change in the last uh, 12 years. So yeah, I think that, that part of it doesn't doesn't age as well. I think the tiger parts do because yeah. they don't a- according to what I, I read here, their real tigers were used for the film, but the actors never interacted with them. Um That's so, smart. I, <laughs> They're tigers. <laughs> but um I think it the editing and the filming and the shot selection, it looks like they are interacting. I agree with you. And the supporting performances in this movie are very solid. So one of them is Garrett Dillahunt, who's always good. Mm-hmm. And he's the evil stepfather. Yeah. And, I mean, he does a good job of being that, like, weaselly, probably not super bright. He was great. And then Meatloaf plays. It, it is one scene. Yeah. But, first of all, it's the theme of the movie. Like, he delivers the news. And he's just got such a, such a presence. He has the... Tiger. So he delivers the tiger to the mean stepdad, and mm-hmm. and uh, the, the the Garrett Dillahunt's character is explaining in this sort of, you know, uh, Tiger King kind of a way that he wants to start an attraction and he needs a scary cat. And right. Meatloaf is the one who says, "This is not a scary cat. This cat cat is evil." So it, it just sets up where the movie is going to go, and he does such a great job in just one scene right. of delivering the most important lines and leaving you with like a, uh-oh, this isn't going to oh, go yeah. well impression. A, a, a great bit of foreshadowing, and I think really everything would have worked out fine if it wasn't for that bitch Carol Baskin. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but it, yeah, it's the one scene uh, with Meatloaf, but you're right, he has a presence like he always does, and not just a, and I'm not just talking about a physical presence, he just had that dramatic presence about yeah. him that he commanded attention. And it is a very important scene. And you're right, a very important line. Because, uh, yeah, this is not to be, that the tiger is not to be messed with. Uh, and once they get inside there, and, of course, the, the, the family has to stay alive, especially for the laundry shoot scene. Oh, my God. Uh, definitely worth checking out from 2010. That is Burning Bright, uh, number four on our list of meatloaf horror. So let's take, oh, these next two, actually. Are a little bit of a detour from the big screen, but that's okay because we make the rules, and we can <laughs> and we can break them if we want. This is number three. This is an episode of Masters of Horror from 2006. It's a sleazy, desperate fur trader haunting a local strip club and getting his hands on some priceless raccoon furs, which might be more than just priceless. They might be cursed. This was called pelts. By this time next week, Lou. We're going to have one of the world's most extraordinary fur coats. It's going to make me a very rich man. And you'd like that, wouldn't you, Shanna? (laughs) 
cursed or something. I don't believe in curses, Lou. I miss the Masters of Horror. Yeah. That was a series I very much enjoyed where they had just, you know, every week a different master, a different great horror director brought you another. And look very, who it is here. Right. It's Dario Argenta, who did two, actually. He did two Masters of Horror episodes. And this is a fascinating one. I it mean, is. it's sometimes, you know, I, for me, the sort of short episodic style of horror doesn't always work. It feels too much like a joke, like an in-joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one, that's not the case in this one. Yeah, and this was, uh, well, Mick Garris gets a writing credit here now. Is that because he was a creator of the series? Did he get writing credits on everything? I don't think he did. No, okay. I think he actually worked on this script. Well, according to, yeah, he has a writing credit here. And according to uh, Mick Garris, the, all the directors involved in, in, in uh, Masters of Horror, they were given free reign as to what stories they could tell and whoever they wanted to tell them. But then Showtime, Showtime came on board and they uh, tweaked those rules a little bit. And uh, they had to have no, they had to promise no full frontal male nudity. Can't have that. Uh, and there could be no violence committed on a child by another child. Uh, violence by adults on children or children on adults was fine. That was How part weird. of the rules. And you mentioned Dario Argento. One of the things that makes this, at least for me, and you, you, you're a, more of a connoisseur, so you can tell me if I'm wrong. But this one has definite social consciousness overtones. I mean, there's a message here, which a lot of his stuff didn't do. No. And no, you're exactly right. It was very... And also, you know, uh, fans of Argento, this is clearly in no way a giallo. Not in any way. Nor nor was his other master of horror, uh, Jennifer. They, you know, it's, it's a very different path that he took. And it is socially aware in a way that I'd never... I've not seen that in anything else he's ever done, not since and not before. Um, because so Milo plays a, a fur trapper, and in all of the all of the death scenes in this film are specifically the people die. If they don't tell you this, they don't point it out to you. They're grisly, they're awful, you're horrified by them. But every single one of the death scenes is a way that furriers kill the animal that they're going to skin. Exactly. And it's startling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's clearly meant to wake you up to this issue, which things that you may not have been aware of. And not only uh, Meatloaf, not only in the cast, John Saxon. Of course. And if you if you just stumbled upon this and you're like, is that, is that John Saxon? Yes. But yeah, it, Grizzly is right, because once the people are involved in these pelts, they're like cursed. They're driven to commit these acts. Yeah. Usually against themselves. Themselves, yeah. Um, yeah, every time somebody puts on, so he, he comes across these just beautiful raccoon pelts. And uh, and so he brings them to a seamstress who turns them into a coat. And then she, well, I guess we don't want to give it up. She does horrible things to herself. Yeah. Everybody, after they've had the coat in their possession at all, they do horrible things to themselves. Yeah, and Meatloaf's character very much wants uh, a relationship, shall we say, <laughs> with this stripper. And it isn't until he gets his hands on a beautiful coat that he's able to achieve that with the uh, with the temptation by maybe I'll give you this coat, but oh, I've got other people that want it. So that's when she finally gives in. Yeah, it's. I mean, the whole movie is um, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. <laughs> but it's it's unseemly. No, yeah, it's meant to be. It is meant it's, to be. It's creepy and unseemly. It yeah, definitely is. Definitely is. And that is a Masters of Horror episode from 2006 called Pelts. And all these episodes are what? About 30 minutes? Oh, yeah. yeah. They're short. Yeah. So, but Actually, go watch all of them. Yeah. Takashi Miike has my favorite. Oh, 
But yeah. I, mean, I mean, so many of these are just brilliant. Yeah, and this one's from, uh, again, 2006, Pelts, Masters of Horror, number three. So moving up to number two, another sort of anthology series, very famous, Tales from the Crypt. This is an episode, uh, 1992, where married couple Fred and Irma's restaurant has seen better days, but things change once a stranger walks in with a rather unique steak recipe. This one's called What's Cooking? Mr. Chumley, business is picking up. I mean, if you could just find it in your heart to give me a little more time. Um, can I get you something to eat? No. The only thing that I want from you is my money. Well, I, I could write you a check, but the... you ain't got it, right? No, sir. Then I'm going to be back tomorrow with an eviction notice and a new set of locks. One other tiny little thing. You're one lousy cook. <laughs> we watched the shit out of this show. I started <laughs> I watching Tales from the Crypt when I was a kid because yeah. we had HBO. Yeah. And I watched it every week. And then I grew up. And then I met you. And then we watched it every week. So we watched this as when it oh, premiered. Remember probably well. right before Dream On. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. Or, and right after Kids in the Hall. And this is the, the stranger with the rather unique recipe would be one Judd Nelson. Yes. Master uh, Thespian. Yeah. So you've got Judd in here. You've got Meatloaf. You've got uh, Bess Armstrong. And Christopher she, Reeve. Yeah. Christopher Reeve and Bess Armstrong run the um, restaurant mm-hmm. and it's failing and as you heard because the- Christopher Reeve just wants to sell squid dishes <laughs> <laughs> so as you heard in the clip uh, meatloaf comes wanting his uh, wanting his rent money and he's gonna foreclose and shut it down but yeah Judd has a, a special recipe and you can guess what that is and um, it's the squid he's got the squid squid and more squid cookbook and, <laughs> and, and if you look on it it talks about a squid on a stick uh, is on there for squid and grapefruit sauce. So definitely, as most of Tales from the Crypts did, it had an undercurrent of humor. Oh, about absolutely. It. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. The the you know black macabre humor. Yeah, in fact, uh, they do that old trick where they have a neon sign, but some of the letters are burned out, and it spells enemas <laughs> instead of <laughs> Fred and Irma. So and also, oh, we didn't even mention Art Lafleur, who just yes. passed away as well. Great character actor. You would know his face in a second if you don't know his name. Art Lafleur is in this today, in this as well as a cop who um, he develops a taste for this uh, this new <laughs> recipe. So it's another good episode. And uh, yeah, Meatloaf gets to really chew some scenery. He does, you know, and as a lot of people in these episodes did. Oh yeah, they're. I mean, they're 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 campy. They're just fun. Tales from the Crypt was a fun show. Plus, he's got a great name, Chumley. Yeah. His name is Mr. Chumley. That's right. <laughs> so that's uh, that's another one to look up. And, of course, some funny uh, intro and outro by uh, the Crypt Keeper with some bad jokes <laughs> <laughs> to go along with the humor in this. But uh, this is number two on our meatloaf list from 1992, a uh, episode of Tales from the Crypt called What's Cooking? And what, of course, could it be at number one? But the classic from 1975, a newly engaged couple have a breakdown in an isolated area and must seek shelter at the bizarre residence of Dr. Frank N. Furter, Rocky Horror Picture Show. You've never seen anything like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. The Rocky Horror Picture Show is wonderfully weird. They're probably foreigners with ways different than our own. It's fabulously freaky. It's a trip to transsexual Transylvania. I'm just a sweet 
Rocky Horror Picture Show. Great Scott! So give yourself over to absolute pleasure. See the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So this is one that always gets us talking. You've seen me, before we got together, you saw Meatloaf many times. I saw Meatloaf many times. We saw him, what, once together, maybe? Yes. Maybe, what? Have we, did we ever, any of us, see him do whatever happened to Saturday Night or now called Hot Patootie live? No, which I never understood. When I saw him before I met you, it was because here's the reason. There was a, a bar about 45 miles from my hometown, and he would play there once a year. And if you had tickets, which were inexpensive, they were like $7, you didn't get carded. You could just come in with a ticket. Sure. So my whole high school, we would just go once a year, 40 yeah. minutes outside town and watch Meatloaf. And just get obliterated yeah. because that we're was, from Tiffin and there wasn't much else to do. Because that was in the years in between the bat out of hells. And so he wasn't, you know, filling the seats of the big arenas like he did before. Well, I think my point is I did not give a shit who was playing there. <laughs> and it happened that it was always Meatloaf. So I, did, I saw Meatloaf at least three times yeah. before I so met then, you, which is crazy. And the first thing I thought of the first time I saw him was there's only one song I wanted to hear him <laughs> sing and he didn't sing it. Oh, you're killing me. So, yeah, so then we we got together in 1990, and then 1993, he had that big comeback, and we went to see him uh, at one of the outdoor amphitheaters here, and that place was packed. And, uh, yeah, I think Cheap Trick, of course, opened for him. Because they opened for everyone. Everyone. Yeah, and uh, so the point is, we don't remember him doing it in concert, at least when we were there. I've heard that he did, but uh, we always wondered whether that was some sort of uh, legal thing or, or, or whatever. But anyway, the point is, that's his big number in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and it's very memorable. And one of his early parts, we talked about him doing Shakespeare in the Park and things like that early on before starting. He was in the original L.A. company of uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show on stage. And not only did he play Eddie, he also played Dr. Scott, which, and I guess from what I read, he was very disappointed that he didn't get to do both roles in the movie. Oh, well, that's too bad. But, you know... You can see people so much more clearly on a movie screen than you can on a stage. Yeah, and, and of course that, you, you could almost say that there are, there are many memorable moments in that movie, obviously, but you could kind of divide it into before Eddie and after Eddie because when he comes in on that motorcycle and does that, you know, that show-stopping number and then just things take a different turn, I guess. It's a, it's a real catalyst moment in the movie. It is, and one of the things that we've talked about many times that I, I, I mean, again, I, I am not a big meatloaf fan in terms of the songs, but he had a hell of a voice, oh. and, and I listened to that soundtrack relentlessly through my whole childhood and into my adulthood. I still listen to it when I clean the house. I love every minute of it, and you can hear his voice on every song. You can. Even if that character was nowhere near that, he's, yep. he's got such a strong voice, especially and it's on, all over that especially soundtrack. Especially on Time Warp. I mean, you oh, hear yeah, it back there, oh God, and oh, yeah. you can hear him clear as day, because he did. He had such... A strong voice. And it was a great character. You know, he was just... Oh, it was. You know, and uh, and then, of course, uh, and then, you know, the, the callbacks when you when you see it and, and uh, the great the great moment when everybody gets to shout, Meatloaf again! <laughs> yeah. Which, you know what? You could shout during that Tales from the Crypt episode if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, and apparently um, the big reveal in the dining room table, only, I think only Meatloaf and Tim Curry and maybe Richard O'Brien knew he was going to be under there. They wanted to get real horrified reactions of the cast. So the word <laughs> the word is they tried to keep that secret. So I, I could see you being quite surprised yeah. if you didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun, though. And you know what? I, I do love the idea of 
of Frankenfurter and Eddie as a couple. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think when I the first time I saw it, you know, I mean, I have loved Frankenfurter for the fir- from the first moment. I just thought he was the coolest thing. I mean, when I was a kid, and I'd be like very disappointed that he was ever interested in Eddie. But then as I got older, I liked the idea. It's a mismatch that I can get behind. Well, and one of the cool things is when you've seen it so many times, next time you watch that clip, don't watch Meatloaf. Watch Tim Curry. His face and the the, the looks that he gives Meatloaf during the different line is priceless. It's just one of the great things about Tim Curry's uh, performance. As I promise you that he's the one I watch anyway, <laughs> but I'm sure you weren't talking to me. No, <laughs> but you got it. My meatloaf kills it. In oh, that, he in does. That. He, he really absolutely does. does. And actually, meatloaf uh, makes a contribution to the cast of Rocky Horror. Has collectively, collectively won the coveted EGOT Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and a Tony because Tim Curry won a daytime Emmy for Peter Pan and the Pirates. Susan Sarandon won an Oscar, of course, for Dead Man Walking. Barry Bostwick won a Tony for The Robber Bridegroom, and Meatloaf won a Grammy for I'd Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That. Did he only win one? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. He would have thought in 1977 he would have won Best New Artist. Uh, <laughs> you would have thought for, so. For, for Bad at Hell. I mean, my God, what a debut that was. But uh, you know what, though? They had so many weird rules for what constitutes a Best New Artist back then. He might not have been eligible. Because he was on the soundtrack to um, Rocky Horror. I don't know. Well, I mean, I don't remember that far back, but it just seemed like that's, that that album was, it just seems to me, it was like the biggest oh my album God. of my childhood. Oh. I guess I assumed that it had swept the Grammys that year because it seems to me nobody played anything else, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So number one, of course, on our list of Meatloaf Horror, that is the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the classic and, uh, boy, this is this has been fun. I mean, as much fun as you can have with somebody uh, passing away. But just, it's not, I guess, uh, the better word is celebration. Celebrate sure. celebrate their career. Yes. Celebrate their, I know, in the comfort of my truck, or my car now, now they had to get rid of my truck because somebody hit it. Um, <laughs> in my, it wasn't me. In, no, in my car, <laughs> in the in the solitude of my own car, I've been playing Meatloaf, Bat Out of Hell, one and two for the last week, so... Uh, I've been enjoying that and celebrating the uh, the career. And this is a great way to celebrate the film career, at least the uh, horror films as well. But he had so many other. He just did. look at IMDb. Oh, so yeah. many credits. Tons and, tons and, tons. and always, as you mentioned, just a, such a great presence. So uh, good to talk about his horror roles, both films, both uh, episodes of anthologies and what have you. And uh, appreciate it. So what do you think? Is something that we left out? I know he made a bunch so uh maybe there's something that uh we should have talked about let us know any favorites any favorite memories uh you can always keep the conversation going we love that you can find us on twitter that's easy at fright club pod also on facebook and instagram it is mad wolf columbus and the main website with all of our written movie reviews and our other all genre podcast uh called the screening room you can find that all at madwolf.com. So, as I said, we've got our next Fright Club Live event ready to roll, and that is Wednesday, February the 9th. We are going to show Dead Snow, a 35-millimeter print. That is the most fun. That movie is so much fun. And we're going to talk about Nazi zombies because that's also fun. Yeah, <laughs> that's what the, that's what the, they show in the movie. So let's talk about that. And that'll be, again, at the Gateway Film Center in Columbus, Ohio. Love to see it. We start with Happy Hour. Then we do the podcast recording. Then we watch the movie. And it's always a blast. So uh, come out if you're in the area. We would love to see you. If not, keep in touch any way that you can. And until next time, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And this is the Fright Club Podcast.
Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. And stay frightful, my friends.